We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Freedom Gateway from Foundations of Freedom. The Freedom Gateway is a truly secure and private platform for collaboration and communication. It's uncancelable. While bringing together mission-driven organizations, freedom-loving individuals, activists, and engaged citizens across the globe. Here at the Unity Project, we use the Freedom Gateway to escape big tech censorship, leverage secure communications, and document sharing, and so much more. To learn more about the Freedom Gateway and its myriad of safe and secure features to connect, go to theunityproject.org slash FOF. I am thrilled today to have someone that I've actually been following for quite some time. I actually knew of her story before I met her. Um, sadly, I, I learned about probably two years ago now what her story was, um, followed her before I even was one of the founders of the Unity Project. And uh, through the work that we're doing, I know a lot of what we're doing at Alliance and uh, I'm really thrilled to have Jennifer say with us today, uh, we're going to walk through her story, uh, walk through really, I, I think it's actually quite victorious. So I we're I'm super excited to, to walk through all of that. And, um, so with that, we've got Jennifer say, who was the brand president for Levi's and I'm sure probably every person that will be listening to this knows the corporation Levi's. Um, it's not a small corporation and your story is, it's incredible, but I think it's not, unfortunately, I don't think it's all too unique. So, um, Jennifer, why don't you introduce yourself sure. um, and give us some context of, uh, to your journey as well as like how you got to Levi's and then we'll, yeah. we'll start to break down what happened there. Yeah. Um, well, I started at Levi's in 1999. I, I ended up working there close to 23 years, which as you know, I'm sure you know, and your listeners know is very unusual in the world today. People hop around, always looking for the next best thing, but I stayed and, you know, I had offers along the way, um, but I love the brand and I wore the brand and that was important to me, you know, mm -hmm. to, to work in a place where I actually believed in the product. Um, right. And more than that, even, I really loved the culture, which is ironic, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> given the, the end of my story. But, you know, I'd worked in two other corporate environments before that. I had worked in an ad, ad agency for three years, which I did, which I did like. Um, and I worked at The Gap for about three years, which I didn't okay. love. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I don't know what that culture is like now. But at the time, I felt very much like I couldn't be myself and um, that I had to sort of fit into a box. And... I joined Levi's in 99 as an entry-level marketing assistant, and I, I very much felt like there wasn't really a box I had to fit into, mm -hmm. you know, that I could be myself and that everything right. the brand stood for 
rugged individualism and authenticity that it, it sort of bore itself out in the culture. Now, there were issues with the culture. It was the 90s and the early uh, 2000s, and it wasn't yeah. particularly hospitable for women. Um, mm-hmm. And I, But I felt as I moved up the ladder that I could inform uh, the culture and I could change mm-hmm. it and move it forward. And, and I was able to do that, which is obviously really exciting. And it improved dramatically over the years. And I think that's a testament to, you know, people like to say we haven't made any progress, but, you know, I'm here to tell you that is not, that's not true. You know, it got much better for women Mm -hmm. Um, in the early days, you know, all the typical stuff, you know, sales meetings filled with sales guys, drunk in advance, that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. that kind of all cleared up as I, as I moved up the ladder. Anyway, I stayed, I became the chief marketing officer in 2013 and was very successful in the role, held it for eight years, helped the company go public and helped the brand come back from near bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2020, I was promoted to brand president, which meant I didn't just oversee marketing, but product, all the jeans people like to wear, uh, go to market, all kinds of technical business things I oversaw. Um, and was in line for CEO. I mean, it really right. is sort of the obvious seat that would progress to, to CEO, but it didn't go that way for me. In March 2020, uh, from the very beginning, I was outspoken about school closures and other restrictions being placed on children during uh, during COVID. And it was an internal battle for two years, mm-hmm. them telling me I needed to stop, me saying I wasn't going to. Uh, and ultimately, I was shown the door in January 2022. I was offered severance to leave quietly. Okay. I did not accept it. And I've been talking about it. You know, I wrote a book right. in uh, just recently, a couple months ago, Levi's Unbuttoned, mm-hmm. um, which sort of tells tells the story of, you know, what happened and, and the prior years in my earlier life and all, all that stuff. But definitely the COVID conflict is a, right. is a big part sure. of it. And I think it resonates with people because like me, they think of the brand and ultimately the company as, as one mm-hmm. that supports individuality and outspokenness and authenticity. Mm-hmm. And ultimately when I really embodied those things and stood up for something I cared about, I was told I couldn't do that and I needed to leave. So you were, you were essentially, um, persecuted for the crime of saying that locking children down was unhealthy, was damaging. We, we know, we now know all the effects of that and that carried through into your professional life. Were you, were you using your professional podium to, um, communicate this message or was this something that you were just doing in your personal life? It was something I was doing in my personal life. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't use my title. I didn't use my press contacts to try to mm-hmm. get attention. Um, I purposefully, you know, if I did appear on local news shows or write op-eds, which I did, I always mm-hmm. just identified myself as a you know public school mom of four children. Um, I actively would tell reporters, you know, please don't mention that I work at mm-hmm. Levi's more often than not, they would say mm-hmm. you do, <laughs> you know, they had mm-hmm. no idea. Right. I did not have a large social media following at the beginning of this. And I did build one based on this advocacy, not on my sure. role as the Levi's. Right. So, so you weren't breaking any, um, corporate, uh, protocols. I know uh, in corporate America, for those of the people that are listening that are not heavily involved in corporate America to clarify, oftentimes people will sign documents when you work for a corporation stating that uh, any any statements 
made must go through the corporate PR office. No statements can be made on behalf of the corporation. So it doesn't sound like you were in any way violating that. You were simply as a mother expressing your deep concern, which, which by the way, was a deep concern that a lot of Americans had. And that was then carried over uh, into your professional life. And they were persecuting you for this. Yeah, that sums it up. I mean, I had no contract, you know, I think yeah. part of, yeah, I can't say whether or not people who come in, um, mm -hmm. you know, at a high level and are new have one or not, but I did not have one having progressed through the organization. I didn't have mm -hmm. one in my role. I had never signed anything. Um, saying I could not be outspoken in social media or had to get statements approved. Mm -hmm. I had been outspoken um, regarding political issues and causes that I cared about in the past and no one cared. Um, so, you know, this, yeah. they, 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 they would argue that I shouldn't, couldn't do those things as a representative of the company, but it was fine when my viewpoint right. aligned with theirs. Right. Um, sure. So it truly is viewpoint discrimination. Sure. And you weren't going out saying, you know, Jennifer Say, brand president of Levi's has this opinion. You were saying, Jennifer no. Say, mother of, of four, yes. this is my concern. Mother of four and longtime child advocate. You know, I didn't get into this, but I had been an advocate for children in sports uh, since 2008 when I wrote a book about the abuse of culture and gymnastics. So I had advocated for children for a very long time. And I viewed this as an extension of that because I think what we did to children was in fact, incredibly cruel and abusive. Um, but no, I was not using my title. I wasn't using um, whatever platform I had. Um, right, right. I wasn't, I wasn't contradicting Levi's policies for that matter. You know, even though some of them I took issue with, um, sure. I was not, um, you know, advocating that businesses get back to the office, even though I, you know, I, I mean, I might've internally stated that sure. when we were debating these things, but I didn't say that, you know, Levi's right. virtual policy was wrongheaded. I didn't say mm -hmm. that Levi's mask policy was wrongheaded. And I didn't even criticize the vaccine mandate. I knew very well right. that a company policy, you know, if I'd mm -hmm. criticize that publicly, um, that, 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 that's a problem. You know, if we agree sure. on something internally and that's the policy, you right. support it. Um, right. I did criticize toddler mask mandates because mm -hmm. two-year-olds masking is patently ridiculous and ineffective and harmful okay. on its face. But as far as mm -hmm. I know, there are no two-year-olds that work at Levi's. So I was just going to say, do you guys have a lot of two-year-olds working at Levi's? Zero. Clearly not. <laughs> Cle clearly yeah. not. So, so what happened? Walk me through, um, how this all kind of dissolved for you, because obviously you had a very flourishing career. You were on a very specific trajectory to, uh, most likely be in the CEO role. And all of a sudden you are continuing your advocacy work and not as a uh, representative of Levi's, but as a representative of yourself and the work that you've done. And now you find yourself in the crosshairs of um, I'm going to say woke culture. I hate that terminology. It's something that's thrown around quite a bit nowadays, but just really for, for lack of a better term in this conversation, you found your, yourself in the crosshairs of this. And um, who, who were the people that were really putting the pressure on you? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I started right away and I did not hear anything from anyone for six months. You know, I suspected that perhaps people were whispering in the halls. I mean, I really was sort of standing alone. It was me and my husband in San Francisco. Um, basically, that was it, advocating and, for these things, open playgrounds. 
I mean, can I ask if, if I could just interject and ask when you say you're advocating, were you going to school board meetings? You said yes. you indi- indicated you were writing op-eds. Yes. So you, again, you're doing this outside the environment of, of your corporate um, oh, yeah. headquarters. I, I, um, you know, early on it was, it was social media and just asking questions, just, you know, saying, are we sure this is the best policy posting articles that challenged the policy? I was communicating behind the scenes with doctors who were perhaps challenging so I could learn and understand more. Um, so at first it was just social media, but yes, I was attending school board meetings. Those were virtual. I began to write op-eds. Um, I eventually in the fall started to appear on um, local news programs. And, you know, honestly, my appearances on local news, it's not like I was positioned as some like deranged lunatic. I seemed like a right. nice rational mom that just, you know, had a view that perhaps many San Franciscans didn't agree with, but it was positioned as a, as a reasonable and Mm -hmm. (laughs) worthwhile opinion, not as something that should be dismissed out of, out of hand. Um, Mm -hmm. I started an organization or a a Facebook group essentially Mm -hmm. called open school, San Francisco. And we led some rallies in December of 2020, when it appeared schools might not even open in the spring, which they did not. Um, And I should mention that all the private schools at this point were open and all of my peers who were telling me I needed to stop were in fact sending their children to in-person private school. So, you know, the hypocrisy to me was pretty alarming and enraging. Um, But it started, I think I got my first call in September of 2020. So it was six months in and it was from the head of corporate communications, you know, and that role is really about corporate reputation and protecting corporate mm-hmm. reputation. And she told me that people had noticed the things I was saying and they were very upset. And I said, that's okay. <laughs> I understand that. Right. We can we can agree to disagree on this. This is very important right. to me and not just for my children, but the 50,000 public school children in San Francisco, 60% right. of whom are low income. Um, and, you know, not in a position to really get an education on Zoom. It's, it's absurd. Um, and did you, did you ask um, why they were approaching you um, and ask, for example, what does this have to do with uh, my role in the corporation? How, how does this, how does this intersect with my role in the corporation? You know, over time, this was the first call and, you know, over time I began to sort of ask those questions or at the very least point out that it was not impacting the business. You know, in fact, you know, our business had been very troubled, as you might imagine, in the depths of COVID because our stores were closed, Uh, but we recovered, uh, we emerged strong and recovered quickly because of the strength Mm -hmm. of the brand, which was my responsibility. And so of course I did point that out, you know, because of the fear Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, what they would say is when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company and this is going to impact our reputation and our business. But it in fact was not. In fact, I got, you know, I, I said that I, I left the company as the brand president. I held that role for two years. I got that promotion during this time in October mm-hmm. of 2020. So that's a recognition of the fact that I was actually doing a really good job in my role. Um, you know, the stock price, which plummeted when stores were closed, doubled under my tenure as brand president. So all of these fears were really unwarranted that somehow my advocacy was going to torpedo <laughs> torpedo yeah. the business. Um, but employees were complaining. I suspect it was a pretty small minority. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think they were right. I, I don't know exactly. They never really shared any of it with me, but I think they were writing emails to um, you know, the CEO, my boss, as well as corporate communications and HR. 
Um, there was a little bit of noise on social media, but nothing that ever got real traction. There was mm -hmm. a group of um, uh, gymnasts who, you know, had followed me for my gymnastics advocacy, who decided to uh, call the ethics hotline repeatedly and 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 oh, you know wow. call me out as an ethics violation and start a petition to have me fired. I mean, it was like fifty people. You know, it wasn't anything mm -hmm. significant, but this was noise that um, was and, and they were saying to them. And they were saying you were engaged in an ethics violation based on the fact that you were saying that schools should remain open. That yes. was what they considered an ethics violation. Yes, because wow. if you lived in a deep blue city in a deep blue state, mm -hmm. or I don't know where these gymnasts were from, but there was a view, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you're very well, well aware of, that you know, opening schools, public schools was tantamount to one, racism, because it meant you didn't mm -hmm. care if black children died, teacher right. murder, it was anti-union, it was, you know, ableist and showed no regard for human life. And, and so right. that was an, I mean, it's not a Levi's ethics violation, but it's a human. If you really believe that, certainly, sure. you know, you don't want a racist murderer leading, leading your brand. But, you know, I, I, of right. course, that's all, it's all nonsense. Right. I mean, it doesn't even it's make any sense. It's total nonsense when in reality, we, we know that it was actually the teachers unions that were advocating on behalf of um, their contracts and supporting teachers not having to go into the classroom, supporting teachers' uh, ability to not actually teach because there was no teaching, no learning that was occurring during that time frame. We also yeah. know that children were not vectors of transmission. We know that the, 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 the pediatric population, anyone under 18 was actually not impacted at all. There's never been a healthy child to this day that has died of COVID. Yeah. Now there's been children that have had significant comorbidities. So that's right. So yeah, That's we, we now know, we know it's yes. craziness. Yes, I mean the you know the teachers union um, in California was Gavin Newsom's largest donor, and they you know strongly mm -hmm. advocated to to keep the schools closed. Uh, the Board of Education in San Francisco did the teachers union bidding because of course they got mm -hmm. elected with the endorsement of the teachers unions. I would attend these um, Board of Ed meetings, which would go on for eight or nine hours, and you know I obviously took breaks in there, um, but. I kept waiting for them to get to, how are we gonna address this? How are we gonna get the schools open? And they would spend eight, seven, eight hours on things like we need to rename the schools because the name of the school is racist because Dianne Feinstein, a sitting Senator once did something in 1972 that I don't even know what it was. That's what they spent their time on. And wow. then, you know, briefly 20 minutes at the end at midnight, they might talk about, oh, we're trying to get the schools equipped with Right. proper ventilation to open. Well, and I think what you cited was, was really interesting. And I want you to expand on this because I know you and I have, have, have had offline conversations about this, uh, the, the racism aspect. I know that there are schools across the country that engaged in this diversity, equity, and inclusion assessment. Um, I can tell you that Laguna Beach, California, uh, Laguna Beach Unified School District engaged in a contract with Education Elements, which is a company that specializes in diversity, equity, and inclusion um, assessment and training. So it falls under this umbrella of critical race theory. And they did this all behind closed doors without the knowledge or consent of, of the parents or really the constituents who are there, the people who vote them in in, this, in the city of Laguna Beach. And I know that this is not unique to Laguna. And all while they're saying that this is a, it is racist to, uh, for you, not only are you racist, but you're a murderer if you want to send kids back to school. And, uh, to your point, we had private schools, 
across the state, across the country that remained open. I know Gavin Newsom's children certainly were never denied access to going to school. Um, and, and so what you saw was kids that were in lower socioeconomic environments. Those were the kids that were actually being deprived of not only education, but an environment where they're, they're healthy and they're safe. And so they're not, yeah, uh, I mean, the, the children in public school and my children have always gone to public school. Um, you know, I know their friends, I knew their friends. We don't, we don't live there anymore. Um, you know, broad range of backgrounds, but over 50,000 children in, in San Francisco public schools, 60% of whom are low income, disproportionately black and brown students, um, a not insignificant number of homeless students. These kids are not able to do school on Zoom. They don't have Wi-Fi. Uh, lower income students who perhaps are left home alone, very young children whose parents may be essential workers, hourly wage workers, uh, perhaps um, in tight living conditions without, again, adequate Wi-Fi, no social services, food, um, you know, there's all kinds of services that are, you know, taking place and happening in the schools that these children who really depend on them needed. So not to mention, as you said, there was no schooling happening. You know, most right. kids sat in bed, a computer closed, screen off, you know, watching uh, Netflix or playing games on the side, um, not really doing any real learning. And I, I should add to this that, as I said, the playgrounds in San Francisco were closed for, for, for about nine months. So kids also had nowhere to play. Um, they really, you know, it was shelter in place. That's what they called it. Remember that term yeah. for a reason? They wanted yeah. you to stay home. They did everything they could. They closed the hiking trails. They closed, they didn't actually close beaches. the beaches in San Francisco, but they closed the oh. parking lots so that you couldn't really get to the beach. Um, yeah everything they could do to say stay home which is really the worst place um right. that 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 folks could have been and you know for kids especially um teens and, and young adults um this is when they are individuating from their parents like their life is their friends and we isolated them and we locked them home in their rooms and now we're surprised that there's you know catastrophic mental health impacts you know so even for the kids that perhaps had a bit more privilege and maybe could do the schooling at home, they were not immune to the mental health impact, that kind of isolation for a young person. And, you know, the thing, it, what is a life but the sum of the milestones? And every milestone was canceled for these children right. with no That's hope right. of returning. You know, my five-year-old at the time graduated, it may sound like nothing, but from preschool that he'd gone to for three years and we couldn't have an outdoor graduation with 20 mm -hmm. parents, 20 families. Right. Meanwhile, thousands are protesting in the streets and that's fine, but it's too right. dangerous to have a preschool graduation from a school that was our community that we were very connected to for three years. Right. And, you know, I, 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 I shared this on social media and, you know, that it was sad that we couldn't do this and people right. just, you know, tear you apart. Like who cares? It's so dumb and you don't need it, but you know, one milestone after the next. And, and when you talk to older children now who missed uh, prom and homecoming and sports for a year and a half, and it's like one milestone after the next with no hope of them ever coming back. It's not like we said do yeah. this for, or we did say do it for two weeks, but we, it was just never ending. And, and for a right. child, the, like I said, what is a life, but the sum of those milestones, how could they not become depressed and hopeless? Sure. Well, I mean, they, we talked about this too. I always say this was like akin to what we did to POWs in Vietnam and the, 
to your point, these are very critical developmental stages that they will never get back. My son graduated from the Marine Corps and was, we, we never got to see a graduation. He went from there to right. 29 Palms, the, the Marine Corps base there and was, I mean, literally kept in, in a box. Yeah. And I mean, this has been his, his military experience and these children, to your point, we are at epidemic levels of suicide, of depression, of anxiety, uh, developmental delays. You know, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend recently who said that their daughter, um, is significantly behind. I mean, was, uh, their daughter was in first grade at the time that COVID started and all these lockdowns started. Their daughter is now two, two years behind in reading. She yeah. wasn't speaking right. She wasn't reading properly. Yeah. And I mean, I I'm think, that, go ahead. I, th I think that we're going to have, it, we will never know that I shouldn't say never, we, it is going to be years for us to truly I, quantify the damage. I agree with that. I think for this generation, it is truly catastrophic. Yes. There are some kids that are fine and I'm tired of hearing from the families who are like, well, my kid's fine. So you're the problem. There are people that simply could not, um, you know, manage it and help their kids at home. And even if they could, the isolation is not something that could be overcome. I think we have not yet begun to see the impacts. I think, you know, chronic absenteeism is at an all-time high. There are schools in San Francisco right now, this is publicly available data, where the chronic absenteeism rate is 90%. That means 90% of the children are absent more than 10% of the time. Um, I think the other thing we haven't quantified is the dropout rate, uh, We haven't, which I think will continue because imagine this, imagine you're a kid in eighth grade at the beginning who has now fallen two years behind and you're so disengaged. At a certain point, you just, you just tap out and you don't, right. you don't finish. The other, the other piece that's not quantified is, you know, there was strict guidance to these schools to pass kids no matter what. That's right. And so you also have kids that are graduating that can't read, that don't have basic skills, that are not going to be able to hold jobs. Um, I think the sports thing is another one, you know, I would raise. Uh, sports in public schools in places like New York and California were unavailable to children uh, for a year and a half. Um, private schools were playing sports. So colleges were still recruiting. Where were they recruiting from? They were recruiting from the kids who were playing, which was the private school. Right. So the kids who yeah. really needed uh, the scholarships and were depending on that for a college education weren't able to get them. And now they're sort of stuck and they don't know what they're going to do going forward. Right. Um, we know that children that don't read by third grade are four times more likely not to graduate from high school on time. So as you say, this has not yet begun to play out because we have scores of children that are not reading now by third grade and there's really no plan in place to get them caught up. Where's the plan? Where's all this COVID money that went to the schools? It's sitting there and there's no plan in place to help these kids get back on track. Yeah, I mean, I can't even, I, I'm not an educator. I can't begin to imagine the Herculean effort that would need to occur. Um, to really truly assess. And I think you have to start there. You have to get a true assessment of where yes. we are and, the, and the, the kids that are in need, which I would venture to say anyone who says my kid wasn't affected. I did. I would disagree. I would say every human being alive during this time in some way has been impacted and in oh, particular yeah. the, the, the uh, pediatric population. And I know this is a topic that that's really um, obviously near and dear to your heart. This, this is what started your journey to ending your, your tenure with, uh, Levi's, 
but also you you're engaged in creating a documentary. Are we allowed to talk about that by the way? Yeah, I, I would like okay, to talk great. about it because I have some okay, very yeah. specific examples with real specific kids and families. So um, I, you know, almost the day after I publicly resigned, I went and started my own production company um, so that I could make this film that um, is really about the kids and families impacted by the restrictions placed on children. I wanna tell their stories. I want people to hear from these kids directly. Um, you know what? No one could see what was going on behind closed doors. No one knows how children right. suffered. And children often don't, you know, they try to please the adults around them so they don't even communicate it. And, you know, in this particular instance, kids were made to feel real shame and guilt if they did suffer. That made them selfish and horrible grandma killers. So, you know, if your kid didn't suffer, I'm not so sure. <laughs> they, they probably right. weren't telling you, especially if you right. were sort of very pro- lockdown and pro school closure. So we're making this film um, because I want to document and I want I want people to see and know what happened. And they're already trying to change the narrative that either schools weren't closed or, um, or, or whatever. It all happened in the fog of war and the kids are fine and they really aren't. And, you know, we've talked um, to a range of children as well as teachers and social workers and um, and and doctors who were you know challenging the narrative and 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 advocating for schools to open, um, but you know we have two young men, for instance, low-income families, athletes, football players, one in San Francisco, one in New York, and they were counting. Their families were counting on college scholarships. They did not play for well over a year and could not be recruited. And they literally are at a crossroads now. They don't know what to do. You know, one has entered community college with the hopes of, you know, getting recruited from there. Mm -hmm. Another is in a bridge year of high school in the hopes that he can get his grades back. He gained a hundred pounds. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't leave the house for close to a year, he told me. Um, I mean, these kids really, really, suffered and they cannot get their lives back on track. Now, these are two amazing young men and I have every hope right. that they will, but there are also kids that had a lot of barriers and challenges already. They have mm -hmm. lovely, amazing, supportive families, but they have plenty of challenges in their life already. Sure. Let's just sure. say that. And we made it so much harder. We talked to another uh, teenage girl who was featured who lives in Oakland, California, middle school at the time, severe mental health impacts, ended up being hospitalized for almost six months, got in with a bad crowd because the fact is, is kids are going to find people to hang out right. with, started mm -hmm. using drugs, ended up being sexually assaulted, um, was just mm -hmm. looking for connection any way she could find it. Mm -hmm. She was just so terribly, terribly lonely, right. you know, and she said it so eloquently. Um, when we talked to her, she said, you know, people forget, grownups forget. School is everything when you're a kid. It's where you make right. friends, but it's also where you get um, positive reinforcement from an adult that's not in your family. It's your structure. Mm -hmm. It's your whole community. And when that went sure. online, she said, none of it was real. The grades, my Fs weren't real. Nothing was real anymore. It was like an illusion. And so when I started to get in trouble, that wasn't real either. Nothing right. mattered anymore. Right. We have very it, catastrophic examples. I mean, we have a family who lost a child to suicide. We have a right. family that lost a child to an accidental drug overdose. We have a family with a child with special needs, a Down's child um, who couldn't understand Zoom. Yeah, I mean, sure. she didn't understand. All she wants is to be in school and follow the lead of her classmates and learn how to tie her shoes and get her lunch. And um, none of that 
was happening. And so, you know, from the most mundane to the most catastrophic, the impacts to your point were happened to every child. It happens. And, you know, I remember um, speaking to people that had their kids and you, of course, these, these online classes and one case, I have a friend, it was, it was really interesting. Um, her daughter was in an AP math class, like AP calculus in high school. And they basically put her in this online class that had no teacher. I couldn't believe it. So, so this girl was literally teaching herself advanced calculus by just following whatever the computer screen was saying. I mean, it was, it was really glaring to me just how all of a sudden overnight, the education system just stopped. And I'm not sure what the teachers are doing. I know there are good teachers out there. Um, oh, I have absolutely. family members that are, that I have are teachers. Family I do too. Right. And I also know that, you know, teachers that I know and that are in my life might say, well, the families were too afraid to come back and, you know, everybody was scared, fog of war, all this stuff. But, you know, the, the, I have seen studies that show, you know, the, the single greatest indicator for whether or not families were reluctant to have their kids come back to school is whether or not the schools were open. So closed right. schools signaled danger that made families afraid when the schools opened, people got more comfortable. They felt they must be safe. Even if all families didn't choose to come back right away, right. a couple months in they did because they right. saw. And so the signal that children were dangerous disease vectors, yellow tape on playgrounds, closed schools, mm-hmm. every restriction, and they were the most onerous on children. Let's be clear. Yeah. You know, in, in, in February, 2022, 60,000 people went to the Super Bowl at SoFi Stadium, right. and the next day, two-year-olds had to mask in preschool. So we sent right. the signal every step of the way that children were dangerous disease vectors. That's what right. we did. I mean, look, I always said, listen, if you can go get gas in your vehicle, if you can go grocery shopping, this is clearly not the pandemic that they're portraying it to be. And and I've, I've often said too, in the beginning, I think it took me about a week and a half, maybe two weeks to realize that this was a scam being perpetrated on, on the global community based on how mainstream media was reporting. I expected to open my door and find dead bodies lying in the street. And it then seemed you did that outrageous. Right. Yeah. And, and, and in Southern California, they did actually block the beaches off and they were pulling people yeah. off. I've heard stories of people getting tickets um, from walking on the beach in, in LA yeah. County. They and, did in Northern too. They, they mm-hmm. did in like Santa Cruz surf. They, they arrested people for surfing. Um, right. They, in, in, in Marin, they, they closed the beaches and, and you know, there's stories of uh, when they finally opened them, you know, you weren't allowed to travel across County. So you weren't actually right. allowed to leave San Francisco County. So you could be ticketed if you drove to Santa Cruz to go to the beach, or you could be ticketed um, if you drove to Marin to go to the beach there. What, what did we, what on earth do we think we were doing with this? I I mean, I look, I can't think of anything that that we should ever cede over to the government, that type of power. I cannot imagine the type of emergency, you know, and I've, I've actually done that exercise in my mind where I sit and I try to, to really quantify what, what type of emergency would warrant would warrant the American people in particular, right? This, this incredible nation that we live in born out of sovereignty. Yeah. Born out of our constitution. And and then you overlay what we did to our children. 
I, I still, it still blows me away that, that children were used as, as shields, right. To your point, like you you call them grandma killing, uh, children, the fact that that's mental terrorism, the fact that you would tell a child that they have the ability in any context, whether it's in the yeah. context of a pandemic, whether it's in the context of, of inner family dynamics, I mean, if you were to go to a psychologist, I would venture to say that they would tell you, if you tell a child that they have the ability based on their mere presence to harm to another person, to murder yep. or harm someone else, that is the definition of mental abuse. It's torture. It's, it's, yeah. it's deranged and it's torture. And we told children that merely by breathing, they were murderers mm. and children more than anybody else. The restrictions to children persisted and lasted longer and were more onerous than any other people. We told children right. they were the most dangerous among us. That is That's right. That is that is cruelty. It is demonic and it is mm -hmm. it is torture. It's it's abuse. And to think they won't understand that. Right. And, and I want to remind everyone that, that's, that's, I, I apologize for cutting you off. That's good. Uh, but I want to remind people that are listening to this in states like California and states like New York and, and states peppered in between that once those mask mandates were lifted at a, at a state level, the school systems will still requiring kids to wear masks. Yeah. I think Head Start only removed it, uh, you know, a couple months ago. Yeah. And didn't you tell me that, that there's a county in Northern California now that are trying, that are going back to masking? Did yeah. I, hear that I, I mean, I don't know where they are right now, but it was actually um, days after the, the Cochrane study came out and, you know, for folks that don't know, that was a meta analysis of over 70 mass studies. And, you know, the conclusion was that, well, there's some debate about what the conclusion was now, but that mass really had no impact. Um, and certainly mass mandates had no impact. Just several days after that, a school district in Northern California and Marin re-implemented masking for elementary school students, elementary school K through five. Wow. It's just like the evidence doesn't matter. I mean, and, and, and to think that, you know, that doesn't interfere with a child's development, with language development, with our ability to communicate, you know, let alone the outliers. And you have children who are hard of hearing, who are perhaps deaf that, you know, need to read lips. Um, children who are perhaps autistic that are learning to read emotion and faces and connect. I mean, all children are learning that, but it's more difficult for some uh, to think that this does not have a, a, a dramatic dramatically negative impact on their the psychosocial development is ignoring any and all evidence to further a narrative. I mean, it, it just is, it's, it's a lie. Sure. It's totally um, transparent at this point. Yes. Um, and you know, all of these policies were based on lies. Um, yeah. they just were everything. It, it, not everyone was at equal risk, as you stated, no healthy children. Um, yeah. have, have, have died of, of COVID, um, learning loss, not existing learning loss as a racist construct, which is what, you know, the teachers union in LA said, as well as the board of ed in, in San Francisco, that was a lie. It's it, learning loss is real and it dramatically affects these children's life trajectories, their life expectancy. Um, I mean, it impacts everything, um, that masks don't interfere, that masks protect us, <laughs> you know, everything was based 
on a lie and it somehow became perfectly okay to demonize children. I mean, well-known members of Biden's COVID task force, Andy Slavitt, called children mosquitoes. And he said he would, he says it was a joke, but you know, he said, keep your college kids in the garage when they come home. I mean, mm -hmm. under what circumstances is it okay to say horrible things like this? Right. I mean, never before have, have we seen that. And I saw horrible things. I mean, I saw families around Thanksgiving time that had a child that uh, had a COVID exposure. So they put the child on the, on the patio and closed the, the sliding glass door and the child had to eat outside while everyone, I mean, this is the kind yeah. of behavior that people were engaging in and it, and it's, it's mind blowing, but, but what's also, I think probably more mind blowing than that is what happened to you. And what I mean by that is we lost our ability to ask a question. We were no longer able, if you were asking the question, well, hold on, wait a minute. This doesn't seem like it's adding up. It seems strange that we're keeping malls open, but we're closing beaches. It seems strange to me that people are going to the Super Bowl, but we're masking children up. It seems strange. Every question that was being asked, you were actually uh, looked upon as though you were committing some type of crime That's right. for simply asking a, a logical question. Not just malls. Let me be clear. Strip clubs, mm -hmm. bars, nightclubs were all open in San Francisco. People could go to sex clubs were open before my child could go to English class. That's right. That's right. It's I bananas. Mean, it's so unbelievable. I'm still sort of stunned by it. And if I could just answer the question you asked earlier, like that you asked yourself under what circumstances? None. There are no right. circumstances. None. If it is dangerous enough and if it is Ebola, everybody will stay home because they will actually right. be terrified. There are no circumstances under which you can remove our civil liberties in this That's way. Right. The right to gather, um, they policed who we had in our home. Snitching mm -hmm. was at an all-time high. They told us how many people we could gather with outside. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I had the police called on my family. I have four children. It's a big family. People thought we were more than one household. They called the police on us. We had to prove that we lived in one household. Uh, people couldn't worship. Uh, I mean, I could, you know, I could go on. And to your point, the censorship just is through the roof. And at this point, the Democratic Party defends the censorship as necessary for safety. And so, right. you know, to my mind, I, I don't even do the math problem, you know, the, the math mm -hmm. problem of under what circumstances would this kind of restriction to our rights be okay? Mm -hmm. I, the math the mass, meaning, you know, mm -hmm. infection fatality rate, that kind of thing. It mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's a moral abomination, right. no matter what, right. no right. matter yeah. what. Right. And that's what I was getting at is that to your point, as I've gone through this exercise, there is nothing, there is nothing that would warrant or justify us handing over any amount of our personal sovereignty, uh, our personal I said, look, when you live in a country where you no longer have the ability to move about freely within your own community, when you no longer have the right to make informed medical decisions on behalf of your children, you, when you no longer have the right to determine the type of education that your children is receiving, uh, when you are forced to inject your children with something that is experimental, when you are forced to put your children in an environment that is so damaging mentally that they're on the verge of severe depression or potentially suicide, you no longer have 
what the founding fathers of this country had imagined. This, you don't. This, we are, we're a, in dire. Go ahead. What's, what's alarming to me, and it really is, if not the sort of seeds of tyranny and authoritarianism, if not the full manifestation of it, is most people were willing to give up freedom, all freedoms and ability to make their own choices in exchange for a feeling of safety and being with the in-group and feeling sort of very virtuous. Almost everyone I know. And I, I was stunned by that. I, I didn't think I would ever see such a thing in America. Well, I really didn't. Um, I think that's why I think that's why Benjamin Franklin said those that would give up a little um, safety for security and freedom deserve neither safety nor freedom. So I'm pretty but sure every, that's why Benjamin Franklin said that. Yeah, but every authoritarian regime, every tyrannical regime, that's the deal. That's the bargain they offer. They offer you, right. you know, they give mm -hmm. us your rights in exchange for safety. We will protect you. Um, right. They all encourage snitching on your neighbor. Right. They all, right. and, and that happened. I mean, there was a special number sure. set up in San Francisco uh, that people could call to tell if they saw people going into a church or if they saw some you know, one having guests in their home, they would call. It's, it's astonishing to me that we lived through this in America. I never thought I would see it. You know, it's McCarthyism, not that's before my time. It's the, the Stasi in East Germany. It's families mm -hmm. turning on family members. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what I came to realize and understand is it's human nature. And most people will go along with that. Most people are obedient and they will not resist and they'd rather stand with the group and feel virtuous in doing so uh, than challenge a lie. They'll, they'll further sure. the lie if it means they get to stand right. with the group and they don't have to be called names and they won't be ostracized. You know, I think there were, there was a percentage of people that fervently believed all this stuff, but I think there were a lot of people that just went along. Well, and I think that's why, um, when I heard about your story, again, this predates the unity project. Uh, so, you know, personally I'm hearing about your story and I thought to myself, this woman is incredible. You're incredibly unique. Um, and, and I know, you know, you may, you may feel like, oh, anyone could have done this, but the fact that you chose to walk away from a settlement, the fact that you chose to say, look, I don't care. You guys, you guys can, can fling mud at me all day. I'm going to speak about what I know to be true. And I'm going to advocate on behalf of children and advocate on behalf of the American people. That's a very unique quality. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's very daunting, this idea, especially for, for the adolescent population. You know, I know there's a lot of adolescents in my life that, are strong individuals and want to stand up for what's right. But it's very intense. It's very scary for, for someone to stand up and go against what the, the, the common narrative is. And I think there are a lot of people in this country, a lot, I think actually more than we, than we are certainly led to believe in more than we even realize that probably agree with everything we're saying, but it's terrifying to stand up and be that one person that takes the first step. And then be the person that much like you ends up losing their job, their livelihood, their ability to put food on the table and a roof over their head for their family, which to me, by the way, is criminal. Yeah. Yeah. When you put it that way. Yeah. I, you know, I think, I think 
one, yes, I agree with everything that you just said. It is not for the faint of heart. Um, I, it has been very difficult. You know, I'm not going to lie. It's still difficult. The two years of conflict internally, you know, from the time I got that first call, I got one every two weeks for the next year and a half. And I had to stand my ground every time. And I had to gather my strength and courage every time. I had to do an apology tour, which I did not apologize in, but I literally had to stand up in front of a few hundred employees who were angry with me and explain. And, you know, I was briefed before the session um, with certain questions. Are you with us or against us? Are you a racist? Are you a conspiracy theorist? Are you a wolf in sheep's clothing? I mean, it's like some sort of, you know, CCP struggle session. And, you know, the interesting wow. thing is I found the email fairly recently that was, you know, meant as a kind preparation for the meeting. And I remember, I, you know, I reread it recently and it was so astonishing to me. It was so insane to me. But at the time when I got it, I was like, okay, I'll just prepare. Because <laughs> not that I thought it was normal to ask those questions, but I right. knew that that's what people were thinking. And so I sort of accepted it and I thought I'll explain myself. I did not apologize, but I did explain sure. myself because I believed in my ability to sort of build bridges, which I clearly failed at doing and, because and I got, got housed in. Um, but that, it's but hard. It, you're right. Got, it's really hard and most people won't do it. And But I, I guess the thing I, I just want to wrap that with is I don't like it either. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not especially courageous. Like I, I, I grew up in an environment with like enforced obedience and it, I grew up in an insanely cruel environment in, in, in my gymnastics. And I had to teach myself to mm -hmm. challenge and I have to, you know, steal myself every time I do it. I'm not this person that's out there that just wants to fight with everybody. I don't love conflict. Some people do, you know, my right. husband doesn't mind conflict at all. I don't like it, but I won't further a lot. I just mm -hmm. won't. That comes first. And so I'll endure the conflict if I need to, because I'm not going to support something that I can see with my eyes and ears is false. I which is what I think, I, which is what I think really makes you even more unique. Because if you're, if you're saying that you're not inherently someone that is one of these people that's like, you know, out the gate, ready to, ready to rumble, <laughs> <laughs> it makes you even more unique. And, um, I, let's go back to this apology tour. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Just create the scene for me because I'm imagining this room with like a hundred people with pitchforks because you're, you know, you're a racist because you want children to be able to engage in mainstream society. Yeah, it's a virtual room. So, you know, Levi's never really went back to the office. You know, the corporate okay. executives were cowering at home. I was advocating in internal meetings that we should go back because our distribution center workers were in the office, were in DCs and our store workers. And I said, it's not right for corporate leaders to think we're so special that we don't have to do it. Of course, I lost there. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the, the thing that prompted the apology tour was, you know, I, I started to gain more followers. And at a certain point, I moved my family to Denver, which is where I live now, so that my kids could go to school. I posted that on social media. It went a little tiny bit viral. And I was invited to go on Fox on the Ingram angle. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can imagine what happened. I thought about it long and hard. Um, you know, I'd never seen the show. I didn't really know much about her. I, I, I didn't really watch Fox. It just, I didn't, you know, I, I mean, I knew what their thing was and I knew what people said about them, but 
you know, parents like me and my little open school moms group, we had tried to get our story and our view represented in the mainstream media and no one would have us. And so this was like an opportunity. So I talked to the moms and they said, you should do it. It's going to be a a shit storm, (laughs) but you should do it. It's like, get the story out there. You can handle yourself, you know? So I agreed to do it. Um, And it was about leaving California for Denver, just so my kids could go to school. And I was able to talk about all the things, you know, the impacts to children. Um, And of course, acknowledged how lucky I was that I was in a position to do this for my children, you know? Um, Well, that just enraged employees because it was guilt by association. You know, I spoke with this mm. woman um, who had been a fierce advocate for, I think she was the first national news personality that advocated for open school. I mean, she was out of the gate before anyone. Wow. And so, you know, it was a friendly interview. We agreed on, on this issue and I don't care what she thinks about everything else. It doesn't matter. And in fact, none of the employees took issue with anything. I said, this was March 21 and schools weren't open. So people were starting to kind of begin to get more frustrated at this Mm -hmm. point. My crime was speaking with the enemy. Uh, Didn't matter that everything they said that everything I said, mm -hmm. you know, they agreed with, or at least understood. I spoke with her, this person who is perceived to be, and I still don't know enough to say, you know, but she's perceived to be Mm anti-LGBTQ, fascist, racist, all of these things. So that made me all of these things. That's what makes this cult like, right? It's it's a cult. It is a cult. You believe and you check every um, box in every tenant and you further every unfounded cause and principle, whether you believe it or not, or you are a Nazi and a fascist. Right? right. And so because I yeah. spoke with her, that created all manner of upset in the company and people started complaining. I was not identified as Levi's, just, you know, worker, um, mm-hmm. but that made folks real mad. So all this noise and, you know, to do amongst HR and corporate, and they decided I should do this apology tour. They proposed it to me. They sort of jokingly called it that, but that's what it was. I agreed because I didn't really have a choice. I was trying to keep my job and it seemed very clear at this point that I might not keep it. And so in June of 2021, I did it. I did the okay. tour. <laughs> so and it was, a, and go ahead. And it was virtual. Okay. Um, was it, was it hostile? Or, or I mean, yeah. I, were you, were you feeling were people was, coming at you in a hostile manner? I was very nervous, um, mm-hmm. which doesn't show when I, you know, when I get up there, I sure. pull myself together. Um, what I tried to do was um, sort of, I, I got to say a few words before the questions, more than a few words. Mm-hmm. So I introduced myself. There were a lot of new employees there, for instance, who didn't know my history, didn't know anything about me. So they hated me more, right? <laughs> they had course, no, no positive memories. Um, introduced myself, my role, my history of child advocacy. Um, and then I got right to it. I said, look, I know a lot of you are upset about this. Let me explain. I have four children, public school children. Um, here's why it matters to me. Here's my observations. Um, what's happening with kids in the city, what's happening to the friends of some of my children. Um, I just explained myself and and why I did it. And then I took questions and I did a pretty good job explaining myself. And there weren't really that many questions because, you know, people, even if they're angry, don't want to, they don't like confrontation either. Um, One question was, let's see if I can even remember, gosh, it's so long ago, you know, one was about appearing on the Ingram angle. 
Oh, and interesting. I, 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 you know, do I recognize why that is, I'll use their favorite word, problematic. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, that's everyone's favorite word these days. Sure. And I, you know, I explained, we were censored and banished and the story of parents and children it it wasn't being told on places like cnn and the new york times the headlines were all about what the union said and mm-hmm. um and public health said you know there was never a parent with an alternate view and so it was an right. opportunity and i took it and it's interesting because one of the things that was asked in this context was like but those viewers those are very bad people right they're all right mm-hmm. QAnon crazy people which I don't think that's true. Anyway, it's the number one cable news network in the country. (laughs) Um, And I said, by virtue of the fact that you all saw it, clearly the viewership is broader than that. How did you guys all see it? If it's only these, like, you know, you all saw it. It reached a wider audience. You all said I made sense and that you agreed. It worked. Yeah. So that was one question. The second question was about my husband and, you know, he had been, um, this is, you know, the beginning of 21 or it's June 21 at the time. And he was critical of vaccine mandates and he was critical and cited, you know, he was challenged vaccine effectiveness, which I think we all now know is totally fair criticism. Um, He talked about mandates being discriminatory, um, which they are, you know, (laughs) not allowing unvaccinated into public spaces is discriminatory. Um, it's the very definition mention, of discrimination. <laughs> it's the very definition, not to mention the fact and you know, school districts like LA County pulled this back, it would have been racially discriminatory if you did not allow those children to attend school who were unvaccinated. You had 70%, I think, of black children at the time who were, I don't know what it is now, but at the time uh, that were unvaccinated. But you know, leaving the sort of racial dynamics out of it, it's discriminatory in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know what, not comparable to we don't have to get into, you know, school vaccine requirements, but not comparable to that. These people aren't allowed to go to restaurants. They aren't allowed to go to museums. Like it's not the same. So he was very outspoken about that. Um, And of course that enraged people. And so I got questions about my husband and I said, my answer to that simply was he doesn't work here. Right. So it's irrelevant regardless. Um, I support his right to say a thing, just like I support yours. We all have a right to say what we believe. And it really ends there. And it really is irrelevant because he doesn't even work here. So why does it matter what he thinks or says? Um, anyway, and, and, you know, and I said, do Mary, it's, it's sort of inherently retrograde to assume that I agree with everything my husband says and that I am led around by his thoughts. You know, he can say what he wants and I can think what I want and we can be happily married. So that was one question. And then the last, honestly, there was just one comment and it was a thank you. It was a, oh wow. I get, I understand where you're coming from now. I don't have children, but I, you've helped me understand. And I, you know what? It ended there and I I was very hopeful. I felt like, okay, so I I did it. Did you ever have conversations with your CEO. So the, so the sweet suite of, uh, people at Levi's, I have to imagine that they could see the the common sense in what you were doing. No, 
no, okay. you would be, yeah, that would be, you'd be mistaken. You know, I, I, he waited quite a while to talk to me. He doesn't really like conflict. He's my, he was my boss. So, um, he kind of avoided the conversation. He would send other people to have it with me. Um, I had many conversations with the head of HR who even privately agreed with me, but still told me I couldn't say the things um, mm -hmm. because they were too upsetting to people. Um, the head of Corpcom who had called me first, we had a couple conversations, mm -hmm. but she then stopped calling me because I just kept saying no. Um, a board member, the head of legal, um, it went on and on and, and eventually it was mostly HR and, and my boss as things started to, you know, as the, as the picture emerged. So what was the culmination? So how did this end for you? So in the fall, so in the summer of 21, uh, my boss started to say to me, you could be the next CEO, which I think was true based on my capability. I also think he was using it as a lure to try to get me stuck. You know, uh, you could be CEO if you do these three things. Mm -hmm. Two were business related. One was stop advocating mm -hmm. for children. <laughs> he didn't say it that way. So, you know, how much he meant it, mm -hmm. I was qualified and qualified and how much it was just a lure to get me to stop. I can't really say. Um, at a certain point, he said in the fall of 21, I need to do a background check on you and your husband. It's standard operating procedure um, if you're in consideration for CEO. And, and keep in mind, you know, he had been in the role for over a decade and was getting ready to retire. So, you know, he positioned it as we'll do this background check, financial history, criminal history, and of course, social media. And that'll give us a sense of whether or not you are actually a candidate. And, you know, I will, I will grant this. I think it's probably standard operating procedure for a CEO candidate. You want to make sure I don't have financial entanglements that would be compromising. Sure. You want to make sure I don't have some sort of criminal history that comes out. Um, sure. I think the social media part is a little weird, but I also think most people aren't sure. necessarily well, on social media. The social media way. might be weird, but I, I agree. They do perform background yeah. checks actually at various levels of corporations in corporate America. Yeah. That's so that didn't seem, sure. that didn't seem really very bizarre. And I think the social media mm -hmm. piece of it in this day and age is probably important. And most leaders don't tweet themselves and talk themselves and they're, you know, so everything's vetted with legal. I always talk in my own voice. So I sort of accepted it. Um, I think my husband, that was a little weird, but you know, we agreed. And I, yeah, I think, I've never you know, heard that of a spouse. Um, but so I think that was weird. So I think the real intent here was to then have a file that they could use to say, you mm -hmm. can't work here anymore. And, and honestly, I think they were hoping to find something other than social media that they could use as like a smoking gun. Um, I agreed because again, I'm trying to just keep my job. And I feel like at some point, maybe I can outrun the clock. Like maybe sentiment will change enough that suddenly I'll look good, which yeah. I, I do now, but you know, <laughs> I didn't, I did not beat the clock. Um, and then, you know, so they did, I agreed. I had to agree to it. They did that. I didn't hear, I didn't hear, I didn't hear. I knew he was avoiding a hard conversation. January, got the call. Um, you can't work here anymore, basically, uh, because of your, because of if your social media. You, you, you can't, it's too controversial. It will bite us in the butt. Uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, I did not have my wits about me enough to ask to see it. 
I, you know, I was, even though I sort of saw it coming, it was still a pretty shocking and difficult moment. And I just was trying to keep myself collected. So I've never seen it. I, I will tell you this. I said to him before he did it, I told him, I predicted it. No crime, no financial entanglements. My social media will be a gray area. There will be nothing obvious because I've been incredibly diplomatic and I've never, like, I don't get in Twitter fights. I don't call people names. I've not done anything that is not befitting of my position, but you will find it to be a gray area that you do not want to contend with. And that you'll, you'll tell me I won't have a job here anymore. I predicted what would happen. So, so to be clear, when you say gray area, you're not posting, you know, pornographic information, (laughs) posting sexy pictures of yourself in a, in a thong bikini. (laughs) You're talking about posting information about children's advocacy, right? You're saying things like you believe that. Uh, I know you, I, we didn't discuss it here. Um, but at some point we'll probably have to have you back. Cause I think it's a fascinating story. You're, you know, how you got to the career that you're in and how I actually think you're, you're probably more of a fighter than you give yourself credit for. Um, but, but in the sports world and, and, and what's happened in the sports world and advocacy for children there, and then now advocacy for, for children opening up schools, that's what you're considering to be quote unquote, this, this gray area again, to be, to reiterate, it's not like you had, you know, sexy pictures of yourself on the hood of a car or some other <laughs> random, you know, you know, those that, do not <laughs> exist. I promise you. I don't think anybody would find them sexy if they did exist, but well, actually there's something for everyone. Um, no, there was nothing, there was nothing like that, but there also wasn't in my advocacy. Like I wasn't like getting into fights with people after you, like I wasn't, um, right behaving in a crude manner, right, you know, right. I, I, I so was you've always conducted yourself poised. with, 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 you know, with poise and bearing and, and, and gracefulness uh, and professionalism. To. Yeah. And, and yet the, the fact that you are an advocate for children was this overwhelming disqualifier. Yes. And I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I had the opportunity as I was writing my book to the opportunity I had, I went back over two years of tweets. You know, I was looking for specific things that were perhaps, you know, did I cross a line? Did I say something that was too confrontational or was I a jerk? You know, and I, I was actually really impressed with myself because I know that the rage I felt inside, (laughs) I didn't, that didn't come through. I seemed very balanced and poised. And as you say, you know, professional and, reasonable. I seemed like a nice mom who was questioning and I, you know, 90% of it was about children. Um, every once in a while I veered from that. I was very careful not to challenge Levi's specific policies, Um, but every once in a while, you know, in the, in the fall of 21, I'm sure you remember this. There was a spate of articles about doctors saying they weren't going to treat the unvaccinated. And I found that to be horrific. It's a moral, it's it's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. And so I would post some of those articles and I would say, this is unethical. That was considered really horrible thing to say. Meanwhile, we had a, I'm pretty sure y'all remember the um, infamous mainstream reporter that was sexually pleasuring himself on um, live TV. Jeffrey Tubin. Right. And yet he got his job. He, he, yeah, he, he, got, he retained his job. Well, right? and even now in the last few weeks with Don Lemon, you know, like, look, I'm not a big counselor. Obviously I don't believe in it, but when you actually 
in your job, demonstrate an inability to do your job. He's shaming and berating right. Don Lemon, his female co-workers and co-anchors on air. He's saying women are past their prime after 30 years old. Like that is so uh, sexist. And yet uh, yeah, he wants to keep his job. I don't believe in, I want to be clear. I don't believe in cancellation at all. I, the whole cancel culture thing, as far as I'm concerned, should never have occurred and, sh- and there's, there's no place for it. What I do advocate for though, is for professional behavior and not yeah, doing something to exactly. your point that, that violates, um, your professional capacity. And I'm pretty I- sure that, that masturbating on live TV as a news anchor <laughs> violates your professional capacity. And so what I'm trying to understand is you I and agree. I are having this conversation is where did you violate your professional capacity? And it didn't did. occur. It did I not didn't. happen. No, I didn't. It's interesting you raised that because, you know, I, I find myself getting, you know, a lot of emails and people reach out to me who, you know, fellow canceled travelers, <laughs> to other people who've been canceled. <laughs> and, and, you know, some of them, you know, I very much am empathetic to. And there are others where I scratch my head a little bit because, you know, perhaps they've said something that is really misogynistic or is really pretty racist, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe you should get counseling and you should get a second chance like Don Lemon did. But like at a certain point, if you're leading an organization and you have demonstrated that you cannot treat people fairly and respectfully, then you are not able to do your job. I never right. did any such thing. I never right. did any such thing. Their rationale, of course, was one of the things I, well, I'll, that I, I was no longer able to lead because I'd lost the trust of the organization because I had done these things outside of my work capacity. So that was one thing. What they've since said publicly is another thing. So, you know, they won't now say that they didn't support my open schools advocacy because anyone at this point that says they support close, supported closed schools sounds like a deranged lunatic. So everybody's right. trying to distance themselves from that. So what they say now when they do issue a public statement, if asked, is I was endangering the health and well-being of employees by challenging public health guidelines, which is utter nonsense. First of all, you can't say you supported open schools but I couldn't challenge public health because public health was, they were the ones saying school should be closed, right. but also we weren't at work. So, so I, in saying I that obeyed to- every, I obeyed every dumb rule we had when right. I went in, I wore a mask. I did right. everything I was supposed to, but you had to be a true believer. That's what makes this right. cult life. So again, in saying that what they've then said is that they don't believe that any person that is a citizen of this state or this country has the ability to ask a question that is contrary to the government edict. Yes. Right? And, in that, this case, and what I would say is, wow, that yes. sounds very authoritative. authoritative. Is, are you sure that's the line yeah. that you want to stick with Levi's? That is, you don't. Wow. I mean, I'll give you one very specific example. It's brief. I posted an article with no comment. It was a quote from an article um, about the the, the recall, the pending Mm -hmm. uh, governor of California recall. You know, know, Gavin Newsom was on the ballot to be recalled. I didn't comment. It wasn't from some like right way. You know, I was very careful. Mm -hmm. It was from some very mainstream publication. um, And I was told, asked, asked, 
not to post anything about the recall election in California because of the connections that the Haas family, who are major majority shareholders of Levi's, because of the connections they have with the governor. And in fact, someone who worked for a long time at Levi's is his director of protocol, whatever that is. So, you know, it's this collusion between mm -hmm. government and corporate entities, even if there's not overt collusion, like we've seen in the Twitter files where the government is asking Twitter, it's this moving in lockstep and corporations, companies mm -hmm. carrying water for the government. And essentially you're exactly right. At the end of the day, I challenged the Democratic Party edicts, the edicts of Gavin Newsom, and you cannot do that and hold a job at Levi's. Yeah, and 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 it's so rampant, this collusion between corporate and government. I mean, that's why you and I know each other because of the corporation between big pharma and the government, right? Yes. Um, this has and been- it's fascism. That's the definition it, of fascism. And it's, it, the, the, absolutely. the left loves to call the right fascist for gosh knows what, for anything. Literally the definition is right. when companies and um, and the government work in lockstep. And by the way, that is then furthered and amplified by the press, sure. which is exactly what we're seeing. Absolutely. So tell me, let's end by talking about your documentary, if we can. And um, I know you're, you're really deep in the process right now. Do you know when you expect it to be done? And do you have any details on how people would be able to view it once, once it goes to market? Yeah. Um, we are about 80, 85% filmed, you know, part of it, it takes long because we want to see how the kids' stories unfold. So we're following sure. them over time. Um, you know, I think we'll be done filming uh, by the middle of this year and we're starting to edit, you know, my dream would be to be done at the end of this year. I think early next year is probably more likely um, just because these things take time. Um, I don't know yet. You know, I'm really hoping for a mainstream streamer. I, I think this is, um, I, I, I produced a film that is on Netflix now called Athlete A. I think this is a story that everyone needs to see. I think it has the potential to move hearts and minds because when you hear from the children directly, um, it's hard not for that to kind of, sure. you know, break through. Um, but I don't know, is it too controversial at this point um, for a mainstream streamer to take on? Possibly, I'm hoping not. So I don't know yet. Uh, we'll start to shop it soon. Well, I'm so glad that you've done a project like this because you know, I say that this is the time we should be collecting this type of information so that we really have a true record historically of what's what actually happened. That's right. Um, not to have some, some whitewashed version of, uh, whatever, you know, re, you know, revisionist history will be told yes. potentially in the future. It's critical that this type of documentary occur. You know, we, we didn't have the technology uh, in world war II, And I know that there's always this comparison and I, and I, sometimes I hate to make the comparison, but then sometimes I think it's just so appropriate, you know, this comparison to what happened in Nazi Germany and from the standpoint of, of, uh, recording historical events yeah. in, in world war II, we didn't have the technology that we have today. You couldn't go through and chronicle and capture the human, um, stories that were occurring and the impact that's what you're doing today. We have the technology. It's so incredibly important. I'm personally very excited to see this when it comes out. 
And what we're going to do is we will link on our website. We actually have a page on our website that is a recommendation of, of reading. So all kinds of different books. I want to put your book up there and we're going to follow your story. And, and we would love to help promote this documentary. I think it's going to be amazing. Um, and just promote the work that you're doing. How can people follow, follow you right now? Cause I'm sure people would be fascinated if they haven't heard, if this is the first time they've heard your story, which I'll be surprised. Um, but if it is, I'm sure people want to follow what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I'm still pretty active on Twitter and that's just my name, Jennifer say that's S E Y, um, active despite having that been the sort of <laughs> what prompted the end of my career. Um, but that's where I kind of keep folks up to date on what I'm doing. Um, I have my own sub stack, uh, which is called say everything S E Y, but you can just search for my name and, and find it there. Um, and I hope people, you know, check out the book. Um, that, that those are the, those are all the ways I think in terms of the film, we don't have a website yet, but we're, we're, we're working on that. If, um, we're constantly fundraising. So if anybody is particularly interested, you can, uh, uh, find me in those places. And, uh, you know, we've been able to raise um, quite a bit of money from non-traditional sources because people who want to see this made, to your point, and I just couldn't agree with you more that we need a record because they're already trying to memory hole what happened. And by they, I mean, the teachers unions, the public health um, officials who kept the schools closed, the school boards. I mean, People say things now, like, what are you talking about? Schools were just closed a few weeks. I'm like, right. are you, you know, they, they, it's just delusional. It, it's delusional. And so we need a record of what happened so that it does not happen again. And, and that's, yeah. that's my goal. And I think we have some really amazing, compelling stories and some really remarkable kids who are just fighting to get their lives back. Wow. Well, thank you for joining us today. This has been probably one of my more favorite conversations. It's been fun. I'm sad to hear your story, but I'm inspired to know you. Uh, like I said, I think you, you are stronger than you give yourself credit for. And I'm incredibly grateful uh, to know you. And I'm incredibly grateful that there are people out there like you because um, it, it's really people like you that are the tip of the spear for change in this country. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. You too. I'm really, uh, I'm so glad we got connected and mm -hmm. I'm uh, inspired by the work you do. And I, I will say the silver lining in all of this is meeting folks like you um, yes. and meeting people who are willing um, to stand up yeah. and push back against lies and who, you know, um, know that freedom and truth are worth yeah. fighting for. So I'm very grateful um, to have met people like you and be in the fight with you. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, right. That is true. That is the silver lining there. Uh, I met, I have met more quality humans than I could ever imagine. And it's nice to, uh, find this group of people that, that are rational and logical and willing to ask the hard questions and, um, willing to kind of peel back the layers. So it is. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we need each other because even if we are, you know, brave or courageous or will or not, but willing to do it anyway, it's still really hard, you know? Yeah. And I, so I, I find a lot of comfort in, um, you know, uh, friendship with people who are also willing to endure it. Cause there's days it's really tough, bam. Sure. It's not easy. So yeah. thank you for all you're doing and thank you for having yeah. me. From all of us at the unity project. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. 
We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.